0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's discussion with Melvin Barnes, um, PhD candidate at the Ohio State University Department of History. My name is James Watson-Cripps, PhD student at Princeton University's Department of East Asian Studies. Today's discussion will center mostly on Melvin's research and its relevance to not only Chinese history generally, but also U.S.-China relations today. And uh, today's discussion is brought to you by the Ohio State University Institute for Chinese Studies. Melvin, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Hey, no problem. Uh, everything good over in Columbus? Yeah, things are uh, they're they're pretty good over here. The weather's great. Um, just trying to adjust to this socially distant world that we uh, live in now. Um, but yeah, pretty good. I can't complain. Awesome. Well, um, I know you're finishing your dissertation research. You know,
0: we've we've had plenty of discussions in the past. So really just interested and uh, excited to hear more about where it's where it's come along to and how things are progressing so why don't we just get right into it so for those of you who are viewing at home or those listening in who obviously are not familiar with what Melvin's doing um, I'll let him tell us uh, directly from the source so Melvin what's your research on and uh, why should we uh, consider it important in today's environment right now?
1: Yeah so my dissertation Revolution and Race the African-American Freedom Struggle in the Chinese Imagination um, just for a, the quick elevator pitch um, it basically looks at how Chinese people have viewed um, the African-American freedom struggle from 1920 until about 1989. Um, And my significant finding is that, um, you know, the the big driver behind sort of how Chinese people uh, have looked at the African-American freedom struggle has been sort of um, domestic politics um, in China and sort of, you know, Chinese people's perception of themselves and where their country is at.
0: Cool, so with that in mind then, this discussion of the domestic versus, I guess the outside influences and uh, the different kinds of lenses, uh, would you mind putting the research in a bit of context? So not only within the you know, historiography, but also within studies generally. I know your work cuts across a number of dis- different disciplines. So for those interested in you know, the larger questions of historiography and also how the field is evolving, maybe you can kind of put it in, in the kind of larger, larger perspective.
1: Yeah, so this is going to take us all the way back to the early 90s. Um, so in 1992, we had the uh, the L.A. riots, and sort of that was one of those moments where you could really see the tension um, between um, African-American communities and certain Asian-American communities in the United States. Uh, in particular, in this case, it was the Korean-American community. Um, and in the wake of that riot, there were scholars in the United States who sort of wanted to um, highlight a different aspect of Sino-African-American interaction. Uh, So they went through and uh, evaluated sort of the historical ties between um, African-Americans and China, African-Americans in Japan, um, and African-Americans with uh, Korea and Vietnam. Um, And those initial studies were, uh, you know, done by and large by specialists on of African American history. Uh, and by the early 2000s, you had specialists in, um, Chinese studies starting to sort of wade into these, um, discussions. Uh, but I think, uh, there's still been a sort of, uh, focus on the narratives of African American leftist, um, some people might call them radicals, uh, uh things of that sort um and i think that the the image or the picture that we have painted has been uh, greatly influenced by their sort of analyses uh so i you know my my sort of histori- uh, historiographical intervention has been to sort of put china at the center of this discussion and see sort of um what their outlook was um with regards to those interactions um so you know in terms of my research uh I've, you know, started looking at a lot more Chinese sources um, and placing those as my primary focus.
0: That's great. So I think that's an that's an interesting point you make about shifting your your focus from being American centric or outside looking into, I guess, the China side, inside looking out. And I was curious if you could talk to us a little bit more, not only about the source material that you just mentioned in Chinese, but also some of the actors and, and individuals that you, that you profile throughout your, I guess, 60, 70 year um, time period here. So maybe we can start with uh, those individuals, and then we can move into the source base and the sort of uh, materials that you're using to kind of tease out these storylines.
1: Yeah, so at the, the center of my uh, dissertation is one particular uh, Chinese individual. His name is Yang Sheng Mao, and he's a uh, scholar uh, who did most of his teaching at Nankai University, um, but he's also a U.S.-trained um, scholar. So um He did. He he attended college or um, parts of his uh, university education um, in California uh, before returning to China in uh, 1946, I believe. Um, And so he's the sort of person that I've built most of this story around. Um, One reason why he's important is because uh, Nankai University was one of the uh, first universities in uh, the People's Republic of China to establish an American Studies Institute. Um, And a lot of what they did uh, in the 1960s and then into the 1970s really picks up in the late 1970s, um, was they took part in the production of uh, uh, books on the African-American information, uh, developing information on the African-American freedom struggle. Uh, So he's at the center of my narrative. Um, But in terms of other Chinese sources that I use, I use a lot of um, newspaper articles, magazine articles. Um, The first chapter of my dissertation focuses on a lot of sort of uh, magazine articles from between 1920 um, and 1945. Uh, And um, so uh, beyond the focus on those articles, I also do still take a look at the, um, the writings of African-American um, leftist or, or Black radicals, um, because I think that it offers an opportunity to sort of look at um, the places where their ideas line up with um, what's being written in China and the places where you can see that there's a, a very clear disconnect. Um, and in terms of the, the people that I've featured, I've featured um, Robert F. Williams um, and Victoria Garvin. Uh, These are two people who um, have sort of been looked at um, in the past, um, but my hopes are to sort of place them in a sort of uh, deeper into the Chinese context um, and looking at sort of where their ideas converged and then diverged with uh, uh, Chinese thinking at the time.
0: Interesting. Would you mind giving us all a little bit of more background information on Robert F. Williams and uh, Victoria Garvin and what they were advocating and how they're how their journeys brought them to China?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with uh, Robert F. Williams. Um, Williams was born in Monroe, um, uh, Monroe uh, North Carolina, uh, and he was actually uh, politically active very early on. In the 1950s, um, he became the head of Monroe's NAACP chapter. Uh, and what unfortunately happened to him was he got caught up in uh, what ultimately became a kidnapping case. Uh, there were a few, there was a a, a Caucasian couple who was passing through um, passing through the Black community at a time when there was essentially sort of a, a lot of unrest going on. Um, and these people, according to Williams' account, um, he brought these people into his home and sort of protected them from um, the the uh, the African Americans who were outside uh, that were calling to harm these people, um, and eventually uh, he was able to help them sort of get out of uh, get out of that community. Um, but after after sort of helping them get out, um, he was sort of charged with kidnapping. Uh, so hmm. rather than remain in the United States, uh, he and his family fled. Um, first north to Canada, and then they ultimately ended up in Cuba. Um, And that was, I believe, in uh, uh, 1961. So then from there, he ends up traveling. um, He ends up reaching out to Mao in 1963. Uh, Mao's famous statement in support of the African-American freedom struggle was actually sort of uh, written in response to uh, a letter that um, Robert F. Williams had written to Mao. Um, But ultimately, he ends up sort of wearing out his welcome um, in Cuba, and then he relocates to the PRC in 1966, and he stays there from 1966 until 1969, when he finally comes back to the States. Um, And ideologically, what he was trying to do was he wanted to sort of take African Americans from being a minority in the United States and transform them into being a sort of global uh, majority. So his outreach was sort of in building a a global coalition that could be used to sort of uh, assist African-Americans in the United States. And um, Victoria Garvin, her path was uh, different. She was a, um, she had long been a labor organizer um, in the United States, but in the 1950s, she sort of became disillusioned with politics in the US and, and, um, and with the Communist Party USA. So she leaves for uh, West Africa. Um, and it was while she was working as an English language teacher in um, Ghana that she uh, met the Chinese ambassador to Ghana, um, Huang Hua. And he eventually asks her to relocate um, to the People's Republic of China to teach English there. Uh, at the time she didn't know a whole lot about uh the p r c um but you know given her sort of um, given her political positions in the u s you know as a communist party member um and things like that you know she uh was largely sympathetic to the sort of chinese um cause and she shows up um in China and eventually teaches English there until about nineteen seventy
0: okay. that's fascinating i I ask this because even you know for someone like myself who's also you know operating or working in the, the field of modern chinese history a lot of these stories i think are oftentimes overshadowed by the bigger kind of broad strokes of history so i think it's important to not only uncover these voices but also you know complicate existing narratives and with that in mind then that was my next question is what is the research that you've done into uh victoria garvin into robert f williams and into uh professor yang what what kinds of um I guess things have you uncovered. What kind of complications? What is, have any of your biases been confirmed? Have any of your initial um, assumptions been, you know, I guess, um, upended? What has been some of the more interesting and surprising findings you found over the course of your dissertation?
1: Yeah, you know, one thing that I think going into looking at the materials that uh, Garvin and uh, Williams left behind was that I think, uh, you know, I suspected that a lot of in a lot of their interactions there were. Gaz- there was going to be a lot of sort of uh, miscommunications um, or that they wouldn't sort of really have a good idea of what was going on um, in China at the time. And I think by looking at sort of Chinese sources in addition to these sources, uh, what it really highlights is I think that, um, you know, Williams and Garvin both had a really good grasp on what was happening um, in China while they were there. Um, uh, I don't think that either of them I think Williams ultimately, you know, learned to speak some Chinese, but I don't think that uh, they ever really were, were um, fluent uh, in Chinese. Williams was probably, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that they were ever fluent in um, Chinese, but I think that nonetheless uh, they were still able to sort of get a pretty good understanding of uh, what was going on. But I think one of the bigger things that I learned from looking at um, the Chinese sources, in addition to the sources left behind by, the, uh, by Williams and Garvin, is that uh, it really shifts the points that we find to be the really, the really important points or the bookends of this story. Um, I think that when we place the focus on the African-American perspective, um, for them f- as actors who are sort of working to build a coalition against sort of racial um, oppression in the United States... Sino-U.S. rapprochement um, in and around 1972 was a uh, was sort of a a significant moment that sort of kind of signaled the the beginning of the decline um, for those relationships between um, African-American radicals or leftist and uh, and the PRC. But from looking at it from the PRC perspective, one thing that I've sort of discovered, you know, is that in 1972, um, these Chinese, you know, friends of theirs didn't necessarily think like, oh, we're going to abandon our, uh, you know, our, our African-American friends um, in 1972. The picture looks um, uh, quite different. Um, really, the big shift for them comes uh, after uh, the conclusion of the Cultural Revolution in 1976 and with Mao's death in 1976, where you start to have, um, a sort of different uh, political objectives coming into play um, in and around nineteen seventy eight and that really signals a big shift in sort of how um, Chinese people imagined um, what was going on in the United States as it regards to black people
0: yeah, I think that's that's interesting as well because you know a lot of the times we, you mentioned already that we have these large kind of bookends within history, and in actuality the reality is often far more complicated than these kinds of man made or these arbitrary uh, periodizations often often imply. I did want to ask one more follow-up question, however. In our previous discussions, you had mentioned not only this, this kind of disconnect between the reproachment in 1972 and this kind of shift post Mao's death and post-cultural evolution in 76. You also mentioned there was a shift also earlier, right? Because, I mean, your research spans from the 1920s up into the 1980s. So were there any other changes or differences you saw when crossing the, the 1949 divide?
1: yeah so hey that is a a really good question um the there were a number of shifts uh that took place over over the sort of span of time from the 1920s uh to 1989 um before 1949 uh there was a lot of different sort of interpretations of the african-american freedom struggle that was um, playing out in the chinese imagination uh You know, there's been in in the literature, there's a lot of discussions about sort of how um, African Americans were a stand in for Chinese suffering. And they also served as a sort of warning as to what might befall the Chinese, quote unquote, race if um, if they failed to sort of uh, stand up and and, and protect um, the Chinese people. And in that time, you know, we've done a lot of sort of we've produced a lot of materials that that focus on the black slave um, and it, a lot of those discussions were revolved around sort of Chinese people avoiding the uh, you know future enslavement um, and what I found by looking back at the literature was that there's actually sort of a lot of different discussions going on and one thing that was really unique um, in the you know before 1949 was that um, Chinese people also look to African Americans as a source of inspiration um, so you had, uh, you had um, Chinese people visiting places like the uh, Hampton Institute um, and the Tuskegee Institute. So these sort of um, African-American institutions of uh, higher learning, uh, and they were going there because they realized that some of the issues that were facing the African-American community were the very same issues that were facing or similar issues um, that were confronting Chinese people in the PRC. So to give you an example, um, they would look at sort of the progress that African-Americans had made in combating illiteracy, um, and they would sort of take the lessons that they learned from that um, back to China in their own efforts to sort of combat illiteracy um, in the Chinese countryside. So they saw sort of the African-Americans as, you know, these, um, I think one of my documents says that they are from the fields and back to the fields they would go. Um, and they compared that to the sort of the 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 chinese peasantry Um, and they said that if they wanted to um, if they wanted to overcome illiteracy in china uh, then they needed to uphold the spirit of uh, booker t washington and uh, make effective change that way
0: so in terms of these kinds of threads of solidarity they seem to be you know evolving over time but also there are some clear parallels between the, you know, Republican experience and the People's Republican experience. Um, how did that then change um, following, uh, you know, Mao's death and the Cultural Revolution into up into the eighties and up until eighty nine?
1: So I'm going to actually go back a little bit before I get to that and that and after nineteen forty nine, um, the Chinese people, at least in the way that they saw themselves, had sort of stood up. Um, they had moved uh, beyond some of those. Um, I guess some of those, I guess, uh, without a better way of putting it, quote unquote, the lowly position that they had been in before. Um, and in doing so, that changed the mindset and it moved them away from being able to look at African-Americans sort of in, uh, as sources of inspiration. Instead, um, as the sort of commentary changed in the PRC period, um, African-Americans became sort of symbolic of the excesses of capitalism um, in the United States. So from, you know, in the 1950s, they're viewed, African Americans are viewed almost exclusively as victims um, of racial or economic oppression. Um, so those discussions about the sort of, uh, you know, the the, the achievements of African Americans and those sorts of things, those kind of melt away um, in the 1950s. And you don't see those sorts of discussions come back around um, until maybe the 1960s, but that depends on how you frame it. Um, Because in the 1960s, uh, African-Americans become synonymous, especially in the late 1960s. They become synonymous with uh, revolution in the United States. Um, And this is also sort of an image that is uh, promoted and cultivated by the uh, small number of uh, African-Americans that are living in the PRC at the time. So uh, here I'm specifically referencing Victoria Garvin um, and. Robert F. Williams. So, as sort of things start to pick up in the US in terms of sort of the long hot summers of the 1960s, um, and then you eventually have the emergence of the Black Power movement, they are sort of contextualizing these events um, for the Chinese people, uh, but they're also presenting them as sort of markers of revolution in the United States. Um, So, what this ultimately does is it starts to confirm the sort of lessons of the Chinese revolution because they're saying you see this revolution developing in the United States, and then they're also making the case that uh, these these African-Americans in the United States are grasping sort of uh, Mao Zedong thought or picking up the lessons that uh, of the Chinese Revolution. Uh, so by the 1960s, this starts to produce the sense that, yes, these African-Americans are learning from China um, and uh, developing a more revolutionary consciousness. Um, but after 1976, um, you know the Chinese people had just endured you know roughly a decade of the Cultural Revolution. Um, so the sort of discussions of revolution, um, revolutionary violence, those things are not uh, the discussions that a lot of Chinese people or citizens are excited to have um, after the Cultural Revolution. So as uh, Deng Xiaoping comes to power, um, and the, the emphasis shifts to stability. Um, in economic prosperity, you have uh, a corresponding sort of reevaluation of um, the African American freedom struggle. And this leads to interesting reevaluations of certain figures um, in the movement.
0: So, what kind of figures get reevaluated? So, I remember prior to our conversations, we had discussed, of course, um, figures such as Martin Luther King, for instance, uh, being as prominent as as he was in the United States, you had mentioned in another conversation that he had been uh, relatively overlooked up until that time. Um, Is that the case?
1: Yeah, so Martin Luther King, um, in the Chinese media of the 1960s, uh, initially, um, it's uh, what you see, um, the allusions to him are are relatively positive in and around 1963. Um, But by the time you get to 1968, um, Martin Luther King has been almost completely transformed into a, a villain um, in Chinese media. Um, he's referred to as a stooge, um, but he's often painted as a sort of part of the um, US government's plans to um, undermine the uh, civil rights, uh, the civil, uh, the, the movement or the revolution that's taking place in the United States. And he's often sort of um, compared to Robert F. Williams because williams 's uh, political platform um, by the late 1950s he had been calling for African Americans to arm themselves and to use violence um, when necessary and really um, one thing that 's important for me to state is that um, nonviolence in the African American freedom struggle has all it was a, a sort of political um, weapon or a political tactic. Um, You know, self-defense had long been a part of the uh, African American sort of uh, freedom struggle. So, uh, you know, oftentimes we overemphasize sort of the the discrepancies between um, nonviolence and violence, but it's important to recognize them as sort of political um, uh, nonviolence as a political tool to achieve certain aims. Um, And because MLK had adopted a nonviolent methods it appeared to chinese uh, to the Chi- the people who were analyzing uh, those events in China that he was dousing the sort of fires of revolution so by one thousand nine hundred and sixty eight when you have the you know the, the uptick of the cultural revolution he 's largely despised, um, but when he 's killed in early April, um, you sort of have a, a minor shift, um, but they mostly discuss the sort of assassination of Martin Luther King jr. as providing a lesson um, to the uh, African-American people, and it's basically putting the, the, in their minds, it's putting an end to um, the idea of using nonviolence to affect change um, in the United States. But this actually ends up changing uh, once you get into the 1980s. Uh, by 19, you know, the mid-1980s, you start to see King reevaluated, um, and he often becomes a symbol of sort of Sino-U.S. Uh, friendship, as opposed to sort of anyone who is, um, who is sort of dampening uh, revolution. Um, so the the shift, if you look at publications from the 1960s, and then look at, you know, discussions of King in the 1980s, it's almost a complete um, 180. But I think that a large part of that has to do with sort of, um, you know, the Chinese experience. Uh, they were, you know, by the 1980s, they had been through a lot um, and the idea of sort of violent revolution wasn't one that they were uh, looking to promote at that time. But also, you couple that with um, you know, Sino-U.S. Uh, friendship, and you know, the the priorities had changed radically.
0: That's an that's an interesting segue, I think, for uh, the research's larger relevance to today. So, what I'm what I'm hearing when I, when I hear you talk about this is kind of a shift from radicalism to a narrative that's more centered on stability, right? A desire for order, a desire for, I guess, the the, de- the kind of environment that is in many ways conducive to the, to the development and to the um, large-scale kind of poverty alleviation and these sorts of measures that largely eluded uh, the country during the Maoist years. And I was curious then with that kind of notion of stability in mind and this kind of conflict between radicalism and state power and outside influences and internal influences. And I was wondering if you could speak then a bit more about how you see this shift, not only within the experience of you know, uh, black, black political actors and um, for instance, Chinese scholars at home, but also, I guess the general public at large and how you see these sorts of things dovetailing or perhaps d- d- diverging from sort of the events that are going on now, um, not to get political per se, but rather we are seeing obviously disruptions in Hong Kong, we're seeing um, contest- contentious uh, kind of debates over COVID-19. And of course, here in the United States, we're seeing um, the black-, black Lives Matter movement um, finding uh, widespread support throughout the country, leading to, again, protests and the occasional riots. So I was curious as to um, your understanding of these movements in the context of China and how your research can also inform um, our understanding of them in the larger kind of context of sino us relations.
1: Yeah. So I think that the big lesson that I've taken away from my research is that um, we have a need, um, not only in the United States, but also in China, um, to really to probe more deeply into some of the the um, social and political questions um, that are dogging each country um, at this time, um, I think that you hit the nail on the head with the discussions of sort of you know this shift in the Chinese psyche to um, to really emphasizing maintaining or the the political shift to maintaining stability, um, and that has obviously um, created some some tension points. You, you bring up Hong Kong. Um, and sort of the the need to sort of maintain uh, stability um, not only in um, the rest of China proper but also um, in Hong Kong and that's led to uh, certain tensions Um, but one thing that's really interesting in terms of what's going on right now is the um, the sort of domestic tensions are interacting with the sort of international tensions um, in very interesting ways right so you have uh, what's going on in Hong Kong and you have throughout China, a lot of these calls for sort of um, public order um, and things like that. But that's also clashing with sort of the image of what they see um, in the U.S. And it's really interesting in that China has this long history of interacting and supporting sort of um, what have been deemed by many in the U.S. radical sort of black movements. Um, But they also have this tension in China where they are stressing stability. Um, And that's created a really interesting um, and in many ways unfortunate tension um, in terms of their analyses of uh, what's going on in the U.S. so you have these places where sort of I think in a lot of people's minds they really want to support um, things like the Black Lives Matter movement but they're also um, you know they also have a tendency to maybe sometimes view these movements as being uh, simply unruly Um, and as chaotic and as symbolic of the sort of loss of control. Um, And there's oftentimes a sort of reflexive reaction to sort of get behind um, the police or the state. Um, But because of the tension that's going on between um, the United States and China politically, um, a lot of times it's really hard to pin um, pin down how these things look today because there's so many points of contact um, going on between China um, and the United States, and it's really hard to sort of discern uh, much of a, a coherent, I guess, uh, narrative.
0: Well, taking a step back then with that in mind, and this idea of you know, fractiousness and, and kind of multiple points of contact, I'd be curious, especially in the context of your research, how much race itself as a discourse has played, not only, not only within the, the exchanges that were going on, You know, within the time period that you're looking at, but also today. So, for instance, within that period from 1920 to 1989, that kind of frames your research, you had mentioned that, you know, there was this search for solidarity. Was that based around race and this kind of, um, I guess, almost, you mentioned this kind of status as um, oppressed minorities, or was it more class based? And then with that in mind, how much do you see today? I know your your background is a historian of China, so I'm not going to put you too much on the spot here. But in your in your readings or your viewings of you know, China's interactions, for instance, with the Black Lives Matter movement, how much do you see race is actually coloring the, um, the kind of discourse that's going on?
1: Yeah, so this has been a big question in terms of. Uh... The, the study of sort of Chinese interactions in the 1960s. One of the big questions is what explains the rise um, and decline of race um, in the PRC during the 1960s and into the 1970s. Uh, and one thing that I learned from my research is that um, the way that I sort of paint it is more so that it was not necessarily an adoption um, of the language of race, but it was more so what I call a co-opting of the language of race. Um, oftentimes at least in the the official documents right uh what you tend to see is that there's always an ending where it says uh at the end of the day or in the final analysis um, race problems are in fact actually class problems or issues of class Uh, so really you know if you when you think about it it's sort of almost dismissive um of of race because at the end of the day they're always drawing these things back or the documents are always drawing these things back to um, class and this again goes back to sort of the what's going on in China at that time by the late 1950s most discussions of race um, had been eliminated in China um, at least at the um, at universities and things of that sort um, but what this means or this doesn't mean that there was no race quote unquote in China. Um, The the idea of race was still present and prevalent throughout China. It had just been sort of moved beneath the surface. And that sort of brings us to sort of the issues, um, some of the issues that we see today, because. uh, One thing that I learned, you know, traveling throughout China, traveling throughout East Asia and around the United States, is that race is mapped differently in different locations Um, and in the U.S., because we live in a very sort of racialized society. Uh, many of us have become accustomed uh, to sort of thinking um, in the mode of race or, uh, or um, you know, understanding how race plays out in the U.S. But I think because, um, you know, when when a lot of African-Americans travel, uh, we oftentimes go to these other places and we try to sort of uh, find the markers of race, um, you know, when we visit China. But the problem is, is that, uh, we sometimes fail to realize that race is actually mapped out differently um, in these different locales, uh, so looking for those same markers that you see in the united states you 're not going to you 're not going to find them, but that doesn't mean that it 's not there um, so what getting back to sort of how this interacts with the 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 relationships today is that I think that because of um, those different ways that race are is mapped in the u s as opposed to china there's a lot of times where um, different groups aren't able to see eye to eye. And sometimes you can have interactions that um, are negative without fully realizing the implications um, of those interactions. Uh, for example, you know, I, I have uh, you know, a number of Chinese friends who I did know to use the um, N-word on occasion. And I uh, had to explain to them you know, the importance of sort of um, avoiding uh, that sort of language. Um, And I think for a lot of them, it was just that they didn't sort of understand the long history um, and things of that nature. So uh, explaining to them why it wasn't okay was something that we had to do. Um, And on the flip side, there are interactions that I think a lot of people have um, when they go to China that they don't realize they may have, you know, done something that was um, insensitive um, in a certain way. Uh, So I think that really the best way to sort of address these things you know moving forward is sort of having more um, education uh, in terms of sort of helping people understand why certain things are certain ways in different places, uh, because you know like I always say i I teach on uh, modern China uh, and East Asia, and I have a lot of people who Don't know too much about China, but they could tell you that they don't like, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or something like that, but they don't know how the Chinese Communist Party came to power, why they, you know, why or how certain things played out um, in China. And I think that the same thing can sort of um, sort of influences the relationships today where people, um, a lot of Chinese people looking at sort of Black Lives Matter, they don't uh, know the long history of sort of policing in the United States sometimes. Um, or uh, they they don't realize that some of the assumptions that they've been given uh, are sort of racially charged, right? Like there's sometimes, uh, especially amongst um, some first generation um, uh, immigrants from from China, sometimes they uh, might think that African Americans are lazy. Um, because as we've uh, touched on in previous discussions, you know, there's this idea of the model minority, and that um, you know sometimes they've adopted that thinking where there are people who say, well you know, immigrants from Asia have made it because they have worked harder um, than uh, African Americans or something of that sort. And so there's all of these sort of points where you have racialized thinking uh, coalescing um, around sort of what I would call um, thinking from the old country, and it produces something that's a a little different. Uh, But that's something that we can sort of address with uh, education and, um, you know, people really learning about the histories of these different communities, whether it's African-American communities, Asian-American communities, or, you know, China, uh, the history of the People's Republic of China.
0: I think that's incredibly salient, especially, you know, given how globalized society is today. And I guess in in closing then, I wanted to ask you one more question because you you kind of honed in there on the importance of education and the importance of these kinds of dialogues. Um, Given the interdisciplinary of your research, right, you you kind of span not only Chinese history, but also, um, you know, American history, also political science, and I would say argue some intellectual history as well mean, these people were indeed radical thinkers with big ideas that had, that they felt could change the world. Um, Looking ahead, not only to your own research, but other people who are potentially also interested in this kind of, in this kind of intersection between the American studies or the kind of US history experience, Chinese history experience, where would you see a future research going or where would you recommend someone who's potentially interested in this field to kind of then take your research further?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you're pretty, working on projects like these, you realize how much may actually be out there. Um, and I think that opening up this discussion and thinking beyond sort of just the black, the, the radical Black experience and thinking about sort of uh, the, the broad scope of the civil rights movement, uh, the African-American freedom struggle, I think that there's a lot uh, left to be Um, to be analyzed there Um, moving away from sort of some of the uh, the sort of Cold War uh, narratives that we've had so I think that the more time or the more research that we can do actually in China and getting at sort of Chinese interpretations of events in the U.S. I think that um, that's where the greatest benefit sort of in the future um, is going to be made Uh, it's really interesting, because like I said, you know, we're used to it, especially myself, I'm used to thinking about race in the US context. And it's sometimes really informative and very refreshing to read an outsider's perspective, you know, even if it's, you know, 1925. uh, And sometimes you think like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really even think about it that way. Um, But I think that the more that we can do in terms of sort of getting at the Chinese perspective, finding those Chinese sources, uh, the more uh, that this sort of field is going to um, is going to grow.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, And thank you to everyone listening at home. Um, Again, this is, I've had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Melvin Barnes, PhD candidate at the Ohio State University Department of History. Melvin, you're uh, hopefully defending soon, yeah?
1: Hopefully. Uh, I don't want to jinx anything, but we're, we're, we're hopefully a month or two out. We'll see what uh, ends up happening.
0: All right. Well, fingers crossed. Um, the research sounds fantastic. I look forward to reading not only the dissertation, but the book in the future. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, maybe some, share some resources or for those interested... Potentially in uh, this subject, is there anywhere you might want to point them towards?
1: Oh, uh, I guess we could we could leave some some reading, right? Uh, yeah. Some, the, the reading list. Um, I think if you're if you're interested in this subject, you could definitely start with um, uh, Taj Frazier's The East is Black uh, out of, I think, Duke University Press. Um, you also have Frank uh, Decoder's or Decoter. I'm not sure exactly how to Decoder, his, I believe. Yeah. Uh, last name, but the discourse of race um, in modern China. And you can also uh, locate the articles written by uh, Keisha Brown. Uh, She uh, has wonderful articles um, on the subject. Uh, And obviously you can reach out to me at OSU. Um, My email is on the uh, history department site and I can share some of the uh, readings that I have.
0: Great, well, thanks so much. Again, uh, today's discussion has been brought to you by the Ohio State University Institute of Chinese Studies. James Watson Cripps and uh, hope to see you all again soon. Thank you.